Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. Today, I'm sitting down with my partner, Jason Baxter, again, and we are going to talk about how to assemble and entitle infill land to create value. Uh, This is something that Fort Capital has done for several years. We're not as active in it presently, but for a good five to seven year window, we were doing a lot of this stuff. And it's really interesting. It has had some great outcomes and it's a unique skill that I think we hope more people know about. So we're gonna kind of start with the assumption that we've already found an area that you want to entitle or that you want to start assembling in. So we're not gonna go through how to find that area. Uh, We're gonna assume it's already been found and we're just gonna go through the steps and kind of how we think about it. So again, this is how to assemble and entitle land. And it also has an assumption that everything that you are assembling to begin with is unentitled. So we'll start by asking kind of Jason, and this will just be a conversation what is the due diligence that we do ahead of time before we start buying unentitled property? There's a lot that we do to get really comfortable that we will be able to entitle. But for folks that are in real estate, entitlements are not a guarantee. It's a risk. You could buy things that you think you can entitle and you don't end up doing it. And that can cause some pain. On the alternative side, you do get it entitled and that you can create massive value. Absolutely. Um, so maybe even before we dive into that question, Jason, what, what does entitlements mean? Yeah, so entitlements are basically what can you do with a piece of land? Every piece of land has uh, a highest and best use, but but currently every piece of land has already been determined what the use of that land is mm-hmm. inside of a city. You get out into the counties, a lot of that land has not been determined yet, but in any government city, there is entitlements that have been established, which create zoning and and building ordinances and all those things that tell you what you can do with that piece of land. Yep. And so the, the goal to entitle is to buy something that's that's current use isn't providing a ton of income or density or things, and then adding entitlements to it to change what you can do with that land. So we'll kick it off with... What is the due diligence that we do once we've already spotted an area that we want to get really comfortable with before we actually start approaching owners and looking to buy property? Yeah. And I mean, we, uh, part of that does overlap with when you're finding the area, but, but you really have to understand what is the, the future vision of that area. And so one of the first uh, due diligence things that we look at is what is the city intend for this area to ultimately become. Most cities have what is called a future land use map or a a plan for what they see. And part of our due diligence process is to really understand what does the city think this is going to be. That's going to help us determine the difficulty of changing those entitlements with the city based on what their vision is compared to our vision for what we think we can do with these sites that we can find a better use for or change the entitlements or that aren't entitled yet. Um, and so that that first step is really important. Once we understand what the city's future plan is, then we can determine the path forward of how to best take our vision and fit it into what the city's vision is. And then we start looking into the current zoning for those areas and the current 
flood issues in those areas, if there are any. All this stuff is public data. Um, we start to look at the current ownership in that area. We start to pull public record and find out if there's multiple owners to understand, is it going to be more difficult or less difficult to assemble these parcels of land? And so we start to dig into what is it going to take to actually get to a point where we can begin the entitlements. And, yep. and before you get into entitlements, you have to understand all those variables uh, of the area and what the challenges are going to be because entitlements can't happen until you've put it all together. Right. And when you say checking with city staff, that's personal meetings, just going down and who would you set a meeting with at the city to learn kind of the future uh, plan for an area? Yeah, that's a great question. Sometimes we get lost in like knowing all the stuff that we know. And so you think bigger picture. But the truth is the key to everything we're talking about today is the nuance of it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. And the reason why a lot of people aren't successful or don't even attempt to assemble land or entitle land is because it does take a lot of nitty gritty work. And so step one is really getting in your car, going down to the city, going in there, sitting down, telling the person you're there to see somebody that can help you with entitlements. It's that simple. You don't have to know everything, but you do have to be willing to go down there, walk in that office and sit down and talk to somebody. Yep. And that process alone is where a lot of people give up because working with cities is extremely challenging yep. and they're super busy and they're not incentivized to help you entitle land. Right. They're not incentivized to help you be successful to change land's use. Right. So you have to be willing to be persistent, go down there, and and just understand that's part of the process, yep. and it's never going to change yep. when it comes to that. And 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 after that step, um, a lot of cities' future land use plans, and which which these aren't plans even for the next two years. A lot of cities have planned out like a fifty-year vision for an area. You can also usually go to a city's website and see the different plans that they have for different areas of the city. But besides doing that. Like Jason said, going down and talking to the people is 100% the most effective way. Right. Okay, so we've looked at zoning. We've looked at the flood maps. We've looked at uh, the different property ownership in there. Uh, we've also looked at have properties in the area been trading frequently? Is there already somebody in there assembling? Or is this an area that, you know, very rarely a property trades and it really is sleepy? Uh, we look at potential easements in the area that you can again find through public records. You know, we might look at some title issues that we could pull, go to a title company and just say, are there certain title issues that are in this area that, that might not be obvious? Anything else that we do kind of ahead of time? In terms of easements, uh, a big one is utilities. When we're looking at uh, entitling land or assembling multiple parcels, the, the easements are important to understand what exists. And as important as that is understanding the utilities that currently serve the area. <laughs> A lot of times with change in, in, in entitlements or, or land use, you assume that your site can be served the way it's been served in the past with utilities. And oftentimes, if you're increasing density or whatever your plan is, you really need to understand what is needed to serve that piece of land. And that can actually be one of the biggest cost factors when you start to change the use of a land or, or when you go to get entitlements is is really understanding what needs to change in terms of the electricity, the water, the sewer, the gas. These things, although are, are usually to most inner city sites, the capacity to those oftentimes is outdated and not set up to serve future uses that exist today. For sure. And if you took a project that we did where we assembled 33 single family homes, 
And the vision was to put a 380-unit apartment complex on that same land. It's very obvious that the utilities put in place in the streets, the electricity amount, the the sewer, uh, what the sewers could hold, what how much water could get to the property, you're increasing the density tenfold. Very rare that what was built in the 60s is going to be there to uh, support that. Right. What about environmental issues? So environmental issues obviously are a huge concern when you're buying land or assembling land. Um, there's different ways to look at it. If you're assembling in a residential area, uh, oftentimes there's not as many environmental concerns, although you still have to do that environmental assessment because when you're building or assembling to increase density or add residential, there just cannot be any sort of environmental issues. So we always get what's called a phase one that allows you to understand if there's been any sort of chemicals or any sort of uh, environmental issues on that parcel of land in, in its history. And that's been tracked back for uh, almost uh, 80 years now yep. in terms of environmental issues. And all this, all this information is public record. Um, there are some great services out there that exist where you can do research without actually getting a phase one to at least see if any land in an area has had a phase one. Um, and if that phase one came back as a with a bad assessment, that is then publicly filed. So you don't necessarily get the answer on your parcel of land always, but you get an understanding of the area if there have been phase ones done and if they were filed and what the result was. And, and even if it goes to a next level of a phase two, you can find that information without even really doing the research on your own parcel. Yep. Obviously, you can do that same service on your own parcel, but without having to actually go through the process of getting a phase one or a phase two, you can learn a lot about the area. But it's different if you're looking in residential versus commercial. And commercial, there's oftentimes uh, uses that have been applied over the years that could have had some sort of chemical or uh, use that that created an environmental issue. Um, and so the the laws have changed from, you know, the 50s to the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. And so back then there wasn't as many restrictions. So oftentimes if you're assembling land in an older area that is now being repurposed and it's commercial, it is very important to understand what has happened on that site through its history because you definitely don't want to be stuck with a piece of land that has to have an environmental cleanup, which could cost a lot of time, money, and years. But it is something that you have to be uh, highly cautious before you go in to make a purchase. Correct. And if it does have an environmental issue, you just need to weigh that into what you're willing to pay and factor right. those costs in. Yeah, I think the one that uh, has always given me the, the biggest surprise is uh, the dry cleaners back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. The amount of times we've run into an issue that a building that we were looking at had a dry cleaner 40 years ago where they used to let them like basically dump all the liquid into the streets and in their backyard. And that has been like the one use from the 50s that has like killed all the hills is like an old dry cleaner or at least made them expensive. And they do have, I will say, they they do have processes now for most commercial sites if you're staying with commercial, if you're if you're assembling land and entitling and, and staying within a use from commercial to commercial, um, oftentimes there's a very simple environmental cleanup process that you enroll in, which is called voluntary, called the VCP, voluntary cleanup process. And that that allows over time for them to monitor that site and learn if it's if it's naturally getting better, that the earth is just absorbing those things and they know that you with your new use is not making it worse. 
However, if you're going from commercial to residential and you have that same use, it's a totally different process. You actually have to remove the contaminated area, right. which can cost far more money than just monitoring it. Right. So either way, there's a process there, but but just that there's a difference and there is always a solution. Right. So rarely will you find a situation unless you're buying like a salvage yard um, that you just don't really have a path to use the property. Right. And so now we've we've done all our due diligence. We've kind of uh, checked the boxes that we need to feel comfortable that we can go start buying this unentitled. And so now we're trying to figure out like what can we pay for this and what makes sense. And a lot of that is like how much are you going to assemble? You know, one way to think about kind of density and where you can create a lot of value when you're entitling is, you know, one acre in a in a small town with the the type of uses in that town and what people pay in rents. And, you know, you might just take one acre and put a house on it. And that makes the lot worth whatever homes sell for, but really no more than that. But an acre of land in downtown New York City, you know, you can build a 150-story building with thousands of people that live in it and retail and, a, you know, all these mix of uses you might be paying 100,000 for an acre in one city, you could be paying 50 million for an acre in another. Again, it boils back down to entitlement. So when we are thinking about value, um, you could have a small assemblage where you're trying to buy, you know, again, we're kind of using a residential take on this, but you buy three single family lots and you know that if you can get that much assembled that you could replat those lots and, and entitle them maybe for, you know, 15 townhomes, that has one price but you couldn't assemble three lots and build a big multifamily community. And so value really comes to how much can you sell the future site for? And you just back into that by going, what are townhome developers willing to pay for a lot that's fully entitled? Or if you're uh, assembling a much larger site, what is multifamily willing to pay for a site? And they, and basically you can go look at the rents in the area and say, well, this area is bringing in two bucks a foot. They're going to build 380 uh, units. If we, you know, get our five acres assembled or nine acres, whatever it is, and you can kind of back into what you think it'll be worth fully entitled, and that should start giving you a good baseline for what you're willing to pay. Uh, the other thing I would say that when when we've done our projects, we are always trying to pay a price, and the way we kind of tell it to an investor is, we are going to pay a price for the land that if we got no entitlements we should be able to get out of it for basically what we're in it for. So we might hit a, you know, a, a 1-0 multiple, we just give you your money back. But if we can get these entitlements, you're really shooting for a three, four multiple. We're not talking about just a 1x to a 2x. If these go successful, there should be a lot of, um, of a, a lot of upside. And the reason why a lot of developers would never go buy unentitled land. Is It's against their business model. They're not land speculators, especially institutional developers. It, they're not allowed to buy unentitled land. They would rather pay top dollar for something they can purchase from you and uh, start building on the next day. So it leaves this really big gap in the market for folks that are willing to take the entitlement risk, hence the, the upside when you're successful. So that's how we think about kind of what price we can pay is, is what can we ultimately sell it for? And is the juice going to be worth the squeeze? Is doing all this work going to be worth the potential upside? Yeah. And I, I would just add to that, that and, and this is what I think has allowed us to be a little more, I guess what would be perceived as risky 
is that you really need to know your end user. Going off the back of what we were just saying is we, we know what potential can be done with the site. We know what the city is allowing us to do at this point. We know what the future land use is at this point. It's very important to understand those things, but knowing that end user, knowing what they're in the market paying for. Um, and the example is uh, what you mentioned earlier was the taking 30 homes and turning it into a multifamily, knowing that end user is out in the market paying 30 or $40 a foot allows you to have a very good reference for what, what is possible from a value standpoint and what you're willing to go pay. And so just understanding what is the ultimate plan that you have for these sites and and applying that value because you know that there's a potential user there that's that's wanting what you're about to create by going and getting these entitlements. And there's there's kind of two. Uh, we don't have to go too much into this, but you know, there's people that assemble stuff that do it over you know a 50 year period. They're not looking for to get anything done in a year. They just kind of keep picking up the property next door. And that's not really what we're talking about today. We're trying to talk about how do you spot an opportunity and execute on it relatively quickly. Okay, so. We've checked all our boxes on due diligence. We've kind of developed a strategy for what we feel like we can pay. That then goes into an investor deck that we bring to investors. And we say, you know, this is kind of uh, the opportunity. This is what we think we can buy stuff for. And this is the potential upside. You get that capital commitment. And again, you can do it lots of ways, but to be really effective in assembling, you need to be able to have really strong offers to people and be able to move really quick. And so whether that's raising all the cash that you're going to need to buy the property or having lines of credit and cash already ready, we've always found it useful to be able to make an offer that is... um, that, that really can close really quickly. Try and make it as if you're, if you're approaching people with, hey, we want to buy your property and we want to tie it up for 60 days and then close 60 days later. Not saying you can't be successful, but your odds start limiting. Um, speed is kind of everything. So if we said, okay, we've raised our money, we know we can move quickly, we have investor support. Now we have to start like coming up with a plan to approach sellers um, and doing it in a way that we're able to assemble. Let's just talk a little bit about how we make offers, the types of offers we might make, and how we kind of deal with multiple sellers where, again, one seller could bust a whole deal. Right. And I think you you hint, you hit it, hit on it there briefly, which speed is the key here. If you're If you're really trying to execute on a plan and you know you need to assemble a certain amount of properties and you know there's multiple owners, speed really is the key. So in my mind, the strategy for what you're going to go do is the most important thing. And it doesn't mean there's just one strategy, but we'll talk about some of what we've done. But having a strategy in in the first place and not just winging it, not just going and knocking on the first door and hoping that it just all works out. Right. Right. You have to understand that you're going to be dealing with multiple people that might all know each other, that might immediately pick up the phone and call the next person. Um, And so you have to have a plan of why you're there, why you're trying to buy, what you're telling them, and and how you keep control over that situation until the very end. Because otherwise, all that work will be for naught if you cannot execute on that plan fully. You'll end up with a partial assemblage that doesn't really meet your objective. And so really just having that strategy. So, you know, we've done a lot of different techniques, but I think the ones that have worked the most is where we've had a strategy to be able to give them an incentive the first day that we communicate with them. Yep. Give them an incentive early that that shows them that we're serious, 
It shows them that they there's a benefit to them, maybe cash, right? And that we make it easy for them. We make it easy for them where we're not asking them to move out immediately. We're not asking them to make a huge life change. We're saying, we're interested in purchasing your property. This is why. And for that, we're willing to give you an incentive today. And you don't even have to make a decision or change your life today. Yep. But we want you to know that we're this serious. And uh, example of that is we may offer... $5,000 today, earnest money that they get cash in their pocket yep. for the contract and they can live there for six months free rent yep. until we decide what is going to happen with the property. That's a very enticing thing. And so that allows us to get a property under contract. And the other, the other part of that is that we're also going and making very fair offers. Um, we understand what the market is at that time. Now, granted, we're hoping to execute on our plan and take the risk and increase the value. But at the moment, when we walk in that, walk up to that door or call that owner, at that moment, their land or their house is worth a certain amount. Yep. And we've determined what a fair value is for that amount. And that's what we offer them to make it fair so that they understand that we're not just, you know, people in the market lowballing to do a quick flip. We yep. have a long-term plan that we're trying to execute on. And so getting them excited that, that we're there for the right reason, making them a fair offer and giving them an incentive immediately while at the same time, giving them time to figure out what they're going to do. Th that's That's been a strategy that's worked well for us. And then allowing that to play out over the next few houses to understand or assemblages or properties to understand if it needs to be adjusted. Yep. And what you're really trying to do is control that conversation as you go and build trust with the people that you're dealing with. Um, and some other techniques that have helped in that is is uh, having clauses in there that they understand that the confidentiality of what you're doing with them is very important yep. and that the communication with anyone outside of the this agreement that you're making with them could jeopardize uh, your ability to close on their property yep. or to give them the cash that you're about to give them. Um, and so you just make sure that you align with with the person that you're in contract with, that that they know that it is a private transaction and that, that the, the word doesn't get out. For sure. Another way to do it is is if you really need to assemble multiple properties, otherwise it doesn't work at all, is you can uh, let the person know that that you do want to buy their property and you will pay them a fair price, but it is contingent on your ability to buy the neighbor yeah. or the neighbor beyond that. And you can actually write that into the contract that I'm making you this offer contingent on the ability to buy your neighbors at the same price. That can be very beneficial if the neighbor knows the other person and they could go talk to them and say, hey, this is a win-win for both of us, but we both have to agree to the same price. That keeps everybody on a level playing field because now the neighbors know that they could mess the whole thing up if they don't all agree to the same price. Correct. And so you could you can work different angles, but the key there is having a strategy. For sure. So, you know, we, we go in, we make these offers, like you said, they're all cash. We put $5,000 in earnest money at the title company. As soon as the contract's executed, we assign, we tell the title company to release that to you. So cash day one, we'll close in a week and you can live there six months to a year for free, which gives you the money you need and plenty of time to figure out what your next move is going to be. When, when we're looking at the area also, again, this really depends on how much you're assembling. Um, if you're just assembling a few lots to turn three single family homes into townhomes, it's different if you're trying to assemble 32 lots that the challenge kind of grows even more. The larger your assemblage is, it's pretty easy to identify like which pieces of property are absolutely critical. Like if we can't get these, the other 32 don't matter. 
And so it's just another kind of thing that that we do and that we recommend the larger assemblages is what are the pieces that if you don't get, it doesn't work. If you go start buying everything that you know, works, but it only works if these other ones uh, sell and they don't end up selling, that's that's a bust. Second thing, um, you know, in determining your price, let's just say you said we can pay an average of, you know, $10 a foot. You know, you have to, even if you put confidentiality clauses and you tell people that, you know, this is a, a, a strict private negotiation, you still can't just depend on that always being the case. And so, Again, not that you're looking to underpay somebody, but the goal isn't to buy everybody for 10 bucks a foot. It's to buy some some people at five bucks a foot, some at seven, maybe some at 12, some at 15, but the average at the end has to be 10. And so we always recommend, you know, on your first offers out the gate, you're trying to be well below that average. So it gives you more flexibility because the longer you're in the assemblage, the more that things could go against you as the assembler. Um, right. And and price will creep up as people start to see change or people start to, the word will get out to your point. Um, I think the key is, is understanding the area when you come in and understanding that the price that you're ultimately targeting is going to be higher than what the base is today, which gives you that flexibility. You're going in and what is perceived to be lower offers is still close to market at that time. Right. It just changes rather quickly when you're, when you're in a redeveloping area. Correct. And if you're a real estate business, a professional real estate company, you know, a lot of times we'll use kind of shell entities to present mm-hmm. the offer. If we put Fort Capital on everything and they go to Fort Capital's website, again, okay, something's going on, professional real estate investor. And so we've created lots of entities that will buy in that don't necessarily point back to Fort Capital. And it gives the assembler kind of a, a more um, simple playing field. Right. And we've used uh, third-party you know, uh, real estate experts and things that that maybe don't necessarily look like we're in there doing it, that they can go in and do the same thing we're doing on behalf of us. Yep. Um, that's, that's if you're in those larger assemblages where you really, it's a lot of work first off, so you need more people. But second, it helps spread out that it's not just one person in here just trying to buy everything. Right. And and it, it, it does become a challenge. But back to your point, I would always recommend starting with the most important properties first. For sure. And if you can't get those, you need to rethink what the strategy is. For sure. And if you really, you can you can pick a timetable, but if you said, you know, we have 90 days to complete the assemblage or, you know, the first 30 days you're, you're, are, the, are the easy buys. Those are the people that were willing to sell. They mm-hmm. like their offer. They're gone. Uh, kind of by the second 30 days, maybe the neighborhood associations now aware of things, the words kind of gotten out that's going on. You still have multiple sellers, but they're kind of taking time and maybe prices are starting to creep up. And so you're hoping your first 30 days, you're really getting your your basis low. The next 30 days, that basis might start to creep up as you're starting to, to deal with maybe more sophistication and everything going on. And then your last 90 days is is really spent maybe on that one or two holdout that, that, that says they'll sell, but it's going to take a while. But the more you can get done soon, the better chance you have of having an effective assemblage. Absolutely. And and the, the sellers are one aspect in terms of, you know, trying to control the price and allow you to move quickly. But what really happens... Uh, in our world is that as soon as those transactions start to take place and and title gets ran and closings happen, the the word gets out rather quickly in the real estate industry. So there's other brokers, there's other real estate investors that start to pick up on what's going on. And if you don't move quickly, you don't necessarily have to worry about 
a seller not selling, what you have to worry about is another real estate investor getting in your way or sure. coming in and, and trying to get control of a piece that you're going to need because they know that that's going to be value. Yep. And so a lot of times it's as much moving fast so that you control the communication and, and get through the process quickly to, to make sure that your project's going to be feasible in terms of cost as it is to make sure that another smart investor doesn't show up and, and jump in the middle. And it's exactly what you just said and, and, and how we've done it. This might not be how everybody does it, but we hire a team, whether it's people already on our staff or like you said, kind of third-party contractors. Mm -hmm. We have everybody sign a confidentiality agreement so that we're all, the, the worst thing that can happen is, again, no offense to a broker, but we've never hired a third-party broker to go start doing it because that broker might go back and tell every other agent, hey, I'm representing Fort and trying to assemble this the word can spread quick. And so keeping things close to the vest and trying to be in stealth mode as long as possible is ultimately the most effective way to get something done. If, if you start bringing in third-party agents and assigning them to try and go buy it, we've seen almost every time it just never really works out. you you got to be willing to do it internally. And taking one step further than that, we literally have boots on the ground that go knock on doors, talk to people directly. We're not blasting mailers out or, you know, some postcard. We are showing up at your doorstep with an offer. We're building a relationship and we're trying to do it as quickly as we can. Absolutely. And I, that 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 point you just made there at the end in terms of showing up at the door, that that is the the most critical component is the fact that we do the hard work, which is. We have a strategy, but we are going to be out there on the ground every day showing up with a contract ready to go. We don't show up at these uh, potential acquisitions not prepared, right? We Correct. show up with a contract ready to make an offer. We know what we're going to make an offer if they're ready. And the point there is just showing them that you're serious. And then having the right people to do that is super critical. Like having a person that can build trust, can walk in there that has good intentions to, to be honest with this person about what we're trying to accomplish, but build trust with them and, and get a transaction done is critical. If you can't have somebody that can go out there and build trust and build have good communications with these people ongoing and be willing to go sit in their house to get a contract done at seven o'clock at night, yep. it's very difficult. Yep. If you think you're going to make phone calls and magically assemble a bunch of land, it's probably not going to happen. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, when we were putting questions together for this, just a lot of people just said, you know, is it worth the time and the cost and the effort? And I don't think it can be understated. Is it is a lot of effort. It does take time. Um, there is risk. And so when you're underwriting this deal, kind of going back to what we said earlier, is if you're just trying to make a 15 or 20% return, go buy a building and, and lease it to somebody. <laughs> there's there, far easier there's ways. Far either, easier ways to get to that type of return. If you're really not looking to try and make a 3X, a 4X, something that is just obviously outsized, then it's probably not going to be a, it's not going to be worth the time. Go spend it trying to buy a building and, and leasing it to a tenant. It's a much easier lifestyle, a lot less headaches. Um, these require a lot of work. And again, if you're successful, they provide unbelievable upside. Absolutely. It, it is, it takes a vision. It takes a lot of persistence. It takes a ton of patience. And so uh, with all those things require a lot of time and work, obviously, and there's more risk there. Correct. And so for that, a lot of times you will be paid more, yep. but you also have a lot more to lose. And a lot of that is time and energy and money. And a lot of times you'll get a seller that'll say, 
you know, maybe they, they've seen this play out before um, in other areas and they say, well, you know, you're paying us this, but ultimately you're going to sell it for this. And a lot of it is educating the seller um, with, yeah, we can only sell it for that if we get everything bought, everything entitled. And so it, you're not going to be able to sell it as an individual for the exact same price that we are because your land isn't entitled. It doesn't fit the future buyer's need. It only works if we buy you. So a lot of people get stuck on, well, we know you're going to sell it for a lot more well, or, or more, a lot more, whatever you want to say, but it's not apples to apples. It only works if everything works. It doesn't work, you know, lot by lot, uh, right. deal by deal. Absolutely. You know, when we've done all of our assemblages, we did it in an era, I think the last one we really completed that was on a large scale was kind of the end of 2016, early 2017. We've done a few more, but um, again, especially when you're in residential neighborhoods, the rise of like Nextdoor and these, uh, you know, Facebook groups that have neighborhoods online. Like, do you have any opinion? Like I, I've I've been pretty vocal about like, I don't know, wouldn't say it's, it's, it's certainly not saying uh, we're not doing this podcast to teach how to assemble and then saying like it's impossible now, but uh, it, there's more factors now in play. I mean, next door and the ability for somebody to get an offer and then go in and tell all 500 people in their neighborhood they just got this offer like that has changed the game quite a bit. It has totally changed the game. And, and yeah, it just means you have to be better at what you do. I think what it's going to do is eliminate a lot of the people that would come try to do this that aren't really sophisticated or educated or willing to put in the hard work to actually execute on it. Yep. But the one aspect is the word getting out there. The other aspect is them fighting against it, yep. right? So the the real, my fear when we talk about these things like the all these social channels where people can communicate now and the word gets out there so quickly is that it really opens up the door to the people that do not like change and they want to fight these things. And, and as a person that's assembling or trying to entitle or develop land, that that is a huge force that is coming at them which is why we don't do it as much anymore. It's not going to stop. So really understanding the city's vision, because the city ultimately wants to see a better future for the city. Okay. Ultimately, it doesn't mean they're right and it doesn't mean they're perfect at it, but ultimately that's what their goal is. And that's what future plan, future land use maps and planning are for. Aligning what the city's wanting and then starting in an area to help complete move forward with that vision, even if it means you're helping them change it and maybe make it more dense, as long as you're working with the city, you understand who your city council members are and what their goals are. They're going to ultimately need the support of those neighbors that are going to be fighting or complaining, but starts with, you've got to align with the city, right. get aligned with the city, then sell that vision to that neighborhood. Right. If, if you don't take that step, then you're fighting two battles. Because those two will align. Yep. The neighborhood and the city will align because that's where the votes come from. For sure. And so you have to take that step to try to, to get in line with the city, sell that vision for the city to help you get the neighborhood on board with what's best for them. Yep. Yeah. If, you, if you're starting this out again, we've said it, we've just got done saying it, going to the city and aligning is huge. If, if you feel like your first meeting needs to be to maybe go to a neighborhood association and ask them what they want almost unequivocally, you will be uh, met with resistance and people do not like change. And it's not just a Texas thing or it is everywhere you ever go. And because of social media and the, f the quickness that information flows, 
you know, you can create an enemy real quick without being really educated. And, and like you said, getting both parties to start aligning. Yeah, it takes a lot of education is really what it takes. Okay, so we've we've executed on our strategy. We were able to buy. Uh, we own all, all this in, unentitled land now. And now it's time to start getting um, entitlements. And we've done it kind of both ways. You can begin getting entitlements, um, but almost always in an infill development where you usually don't have a perfect piece of land and you know you might have easements and things like that, you can only entitle so much before you might be doing extra work that a future developer buyer is might go back and change if they have a slight different use of how they would lay their site out. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about the things that we do once we've bought and then what it's like to enter into a contract with a developer and like what to expect. They're, they're not quick contracts. Right. So on the entitlement side, if we start there, um, what we try to do is just understand what is that that future vision and what do we intend to do with this site? Who, who's our end user going to be? So we can determine what we've done is we've taken that future land use map and utilized that to our advantage to help the city understand what this future vision is, which means no matter what end user comes in, um, we can align with what they can do with the city ahead of time. So when they go in to get the entitlements, it's not that we have a guaranteed yes, but we're way further down the road that we know what is possible on that site. And so starting with that underlying what the city wants and making sure that once we've assembled that we take that back to the city so that they understand what the intention is now, we've had success with them updating that future land use map to match what we've now done, yep. um, which allows for a much more free flow entitlement process for the future user. So whether it's a multifamily guy or a townhome developer or whatever it is, we've set that up for them to walk in the door and know that this is the intention for this site moving forward right. before the actual entitlements are ever in place. Right. So it's almost like pre-planning the entitlement for sure and so that's been our first step with our larger assemblages which has been a huge help and then we go to it's like you said we've now we've done that we've done all the the work and then we might go hire a broker and say like this is right. a great multifamily site here's why again cities aligned with it we already own the land and most developers whether they're institutional or all of our work has been to sell to institutional developers. There's really nobody else building 350-unit apartment complexes. They're either institutional or they're very large companies. They are willing to enter a contract where they're willing to put up the dollars and the risk to pursue all the entitlements. Um, but again, they're they're a long time. So let's just maybe talk about, you know, um, we've had them take anywhere from 12 months all the way to three years. Uh, they don't all take three years, but but... What do the future developers need to be able to close? And what does a typical contract kind of read like and look like so that expectations are kind of met by both parties? Yeah, that, and it, it is super critical knowledge to have if you're going into this process because the larger the buyer, if you're going from a, a small townhome developer all the way up to an institutional multifamily, the requirements for them getting through that contract are going to be different. The, the townhome developer that is developing, you know, 15 townhomes, may not need that many entitlements in place before he's willing to close, but there are going to be some minimums that his bank is going to require before they'll allow him to close. All the way up to an institution, they're going to have many hurdles before the bank will allow them to close. And you have to, as a seller, be willing to understand that is the process. Right. You have to be willing. So 
a normal contract could take, like you said, 18 months for a large multifamily institutional developer could be longer, but it could be up to 18 months is, is probably on the longer side. And, and that's because they need some guarantees that the city is going to allow them to start their project. And so what they're after from day one is, can they turn dirt? Can I put a shovel in the ground and start building my project? And until they know that that is an absolute green light, they cannot put the dollars behind that project from a, a, a uh, closing. closing. But they will put dollars behind the project from to get to that point, meaning they're going to invest their own time, energy, money to get to that point. Step one for any developer is we have to know can I achieve my zoning? Yep. The zoning is the underlying foundation of any entitlement that says, what can you do with this land? So step one is zoning. Zoning can take anywhere from three months to a year or more. It, it, it depends on how difficult that zoning is. In that same time, they are trying to achieve a plat. Uh, a plat you know, determines how, how the site is going to be either divided up or use? What are the boundaries? Where are the easements? Where What are the access points? Um, it, does it meet the the standards of the city in terms of the uh, the land use? Does it does it meet all the requirements? So those things run concurrently, but those hurdles have to be met. So at each one of those stages, the buyer gets more and more comfortable with their ability to close on the transaction, and so the the steps can be zoning. And then plat approval, and typically by that point they've gone hard with their money, and then um, you're in a phase where they're they have earnest money that is hard, but they can't close until they have a signed final plat. When they get signed final plat, that means within weeks or no more than 30 days they can actually start turning dirt, and so that's what they're after. They're after that full approval because with a plat in most cities comes the ability to move forward with the infrastructure. Um, and so that's what they're after in those scenarios. And depending on, you know, what city you're in or maybe the the progression of an area, you know, somebody might be thinking, well, why don't y'all just go zone it on your own before you even bring in a developer and just do it on your own? I would say maybe three scenarios. One, if the zoning's already in place, like while you're buying it, then you're probably not getting a great buy to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you're, again, it's unentitled. Two, if the the city won't allow you to just kind of come in and say like, hey, I want zoning, I want this zoning, a lot of times they're just going to say, well, show us a real project. You can't just blanket zone and just do it to do it. Mm -hmm. And so again, often it 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 is the, even though the city has conceptually agreed that this type of zoning should exist, once, you know, the the developer shows up, that zoning process could take 30 days if if the neighborhood's in agreement and the city already likes it. Often it can be drug out for 90 to 120 days uh, because the city wants the developer to meet with the neighborhood and keep educating and kind of go through the motions, ultimately knowing we're going to get to a success. Mm -hmm. But how long that takes and why these contracts can take 18 months is certain things that on paper should take 30 to 60 days can take a long time. And the city only meets once a month for, for zoning. So if you don't get your zoning in that month, it's 30, everything is 30 days. Yeah, no matter what. For sure. Um, and then once they get their zoning and they've got their plat approval, they've been spending money along the way. They have schematics, they have renderings, but that's where they really start designing and pour, putting in a lot of dollars to start getting plans ready to get a permit. Right. 
Yeah, and 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 they start that process fairly early on because that is what really helps them determine zoning. Back to your point is the city doesn't want to just give blanket zoning without a project in place. And they also want to make sure that that project doesn't have special requirements needed that they need to put in addition to the zoning. So within every zoning, even if it's it matches the zoning ordinance, there's almost always on a on a larger, more sophisticated project, there's always some sort of variance that is required. There's yep. always some sort of supplemental thing that goes into the zoning once the approval. Now, these things are usually very easy to obtain if the overarching project fits the zoning uh, requirement. But those things do have to be addressed. So that's why they don't allow you to come in and do blanket zoning. Um, but but along the, that upfront work that they do to align the ultimate vision of the project with the zoning, that's called site planning. They do the site planning very early in the process. They don't start really diving into the the actual details of that site planning, meaning the type of materials they're going to use on the buildings or exactly how many units it's going to be or all those things until later on. But once they get past that plat stage, they pull full force onto the architectural design and elements that are actually going to to do with the construction so that the day that they close on that project, they are ready to, to go vertical. So they actually start the permit process while they're waiting on their plat to be filed. Yep. So that that is, and I'm, I can't speak for every city, but the cities that we've worked in, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area has always had a process where you can move forward with the permit process while you're achieving your plat. Yeah. So those two processes run concurrently, but you have to have that plat before you can get that building permit. For sure. All right, let's just, as we're coming down the finish line, just spend a little bit of time uh, just talking about how to get people um, on your side, like while you're going through the zoning process and, and all these processes, almost every single time. And I think we've done um, over the life of Ford, I think we've done 11 or 12 of these type of deals where yeah. we have bought unentitled land and eventually got it sold. Right. We won't go through necessarily all the uh, entitlement challenges. We've kind of done that. And there's, depending on what cities you're in, there, there you can run into different nuances. But in all 11 of those deals, almost every time you're not meeting, whether it's the neighborhood or the stakeholders in the area, your first meeting with them is not, this is great. We love it. And we'll do everything we can to support it. Again, these neighborhood associations are made up of lots of people, different ages, different. Uh, some people have lived there for 50 years and want it to look like that for the next 50 years. Some might be new and want to see change that could create value for the area and 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 their real estate's worth more. But almost every time you're not going into it with like everybody is aligned with you. And so let's just talk about some of the things that we have done to kind of go from meeting one where you know you have work to do that mm -hmm. kind of as we move through the process, we continue to gain support through being like transparent um, hiring a local developer consultant that's really active in knowing how the cities work and knowing what things have been done in other areas of the city, right. giving you more tools for your tool chest. So let's just talk a little bit about what gets people on your side and what are things that people can do to, um, to get people on your side quicker. Yeah. Reputation is huge, right? You have to, you ha if you come in with a bad reputation and in, in any scenario, you're, you have an uphill battle, right? So you got to do what you say you're going to do at every step of the way. So if, even before you start getting to this point where you're really winning them over, 
you got to start by have done by doing the things that that were right right all along the way and then it's painting pictures you have to be willing to and it's not just i'm not talking about just visual art i'm talking about you have to paint pictures you have to educate them you have to show them the impacts of things they want to know what is the impact to their neighborhood how many people are there going to be eventually? How many cars is this going to create on the road out here? Are we going to need a stoplight? What about my daughter that runs in the street every day? They want to know these things. So you have to be aware that you're dealing with humans that have emotions, and this is where they live, and they care about all these things, and you have to speak that language. So the way you win them over is being engaged and letting them understand that you know that For sure. and that you're there to partner with them to make this a better place. Because if you go in and that's not your intention and you just want to go in and make money and you think you're just going to bulldoze over these people and win, you're in for a long battle. Yep. And 90% of the time, they're going to win. For sure. Because the city doesn't want to see that happen. Their city's always going to ask you to work with these individuals, which is the right thing to do. So as a developer or as a, a person buying land, you have to get in there and work with the neighborhood, show them what the path is, bring in the the examples they they love to see what the future looks like if you can show them in in a real form right so back to pictures and imagery it is important if you can paint them a picture get some renderings done show them the vision it's hugely helpful because they will also give you feedback and you can use that feedback to then adjust right the way we operated in the beginning was to Find those key stakeholders, find the key individuals in the area, the key homeowners or business owners that we thought were going to have the, the loudest voice, right? Yeah. Meaning that they, they cared the most and we got them together and we said, what, what do you want to see for this area? Right. right. Even though we might've already had a vision, we did, we already had a vision. You have to know what their vision is, right? Because if you don't try to align those visions, it's, not, it's just not going to work. So we, we did what's called a charrette session where we brought in key stakeholders. We actually called them key stakeholders so they, they knew that we thought they were important. They could understand that we were taking their opinions seriously. And we actually incorporated a lot of their ideas into our vision right. of what we were going to do with this land. That little practice allowed the city to see that we were not only just working with the neighborhood, we were actually partnering with the neighborhood to create the vision. For sure. And then... Even as we got pushed back, you know, fast forward two years later, it was always easy to turn back to say how we started, right. that this was their original plan as well. Right. So it was very hard for anybody to fight against their own plan. For sure. Which was huge. And uh, back to what you said, hand-holding and educating, um, not that the people that live in these neighborhoods are not really thoughtful and smart people, but they're just living there. Most people are not educated on development. And when you say things like, you know, four stories, or you say uh, multifamily, or you always hear, well, there's going to be so much traffic. And it's like, is that just an opinion on traffic? Because a traffic study would say, we could build 10 of these things, and we haven't met traffic load. And so on one end, you're also getting professional opinions, you're answering their opinions with facts. Huge. But the other part is, you know, again, if you're in a development's a little bit weird, especially infill development. It's like if you're going to build, um, if you're if you're a t-shirt maker and you want to know if you should make these t-shirts, you kind of go to your customers and you, uh, you know, hey, do you like these t-shirts? Yes. Would you buy them for this price? Yes. Great. You start making them. 
But development's a little bit weird because you know we we know that the urban core is is important that that density matters these cities are not there's not land anymore to just build these huge single family homes all the data is showing that you know apartments or micro units or or more density is more affordable it's more walkable it's better for cities in the long term and so you could go to the future renter of an apartment or the future townhome um, buyer of a, of a place that you want to build and say, like, if we built these, would you come? And you might get the yes. But when you're going in development, you're often getting your approvals from people that have that won't be living in those townhomes. They will not be living in those apartments. And so it's just a weird business where the majority of your validation, even though the market is saying, yes, we want it. Yes, it needs to be built. You're not those are opinions that say, yeah, we need to go buy the apartments, but to actually get it approved is from a totally different group that is usually has a different opinion. And there's not many businesses where that is necessarily the case. And so even though everything and data and you go to ULI and everybody in town says, this is what we need. If the folks in the area aren't there, that's ultimately who you have to focus on. And so again, you could, there's, some neighborhoods feel stronger than others, but almost always, and why we've been successful in 11 or 12 of these deals, is we have been really thoughtful and taken an extra amount of time to educate them. We've shown up to meetings. We don't just, you know, we're not just some developer in a high rise that, that's not showing up and doesn't care about the you area. Can't hide. Like you got to be boots on the ground. And so that kind of wraps up this episode. Again, it's a great way. Uh, to improve cities. It's a great way to, you know, from an investment perspective to be successful. Again, it is hard work. I wouldn't encourage everybody and their mother to do it without understanding the risks. But but doing it right, aside from the financial rewards, can be great for neighborhoods. It can be great for how a city develops. And if you build a track record of being able to do it, you keep building more trust with the city, your reputation builds, the friction to get it done in the future should continue to get better for you, uh, not harder for you. I agree. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.